Hello and welcome to CA Conversations. I'm your host, Stuart Robinson, Assistant Professor of Art Education at Southern Utah University. Very special day. I'm joined by two colleagues here at SUU, Rosie Lindquist, the Open Educational Resource Librarian, Gerald Chair Library here at SUU, and Ann Dekema, Assistant Professor and Librarian here at SUU as well. Today we're talking about Open Educational Resources, or OER. Ann and Rosie, could you tell me a bit more about OER? So OER are open educational resources that are typically digital resources that have been published, have either made it into the public domain or they've been published with a license that allows for their repurposing and reuse. And typically they're under one of six Creative Commons licenses, but there are other options out there too. And those licenses have a legal code and a digital code that allows for them to be reused and repurposed. And they can be anything from a textbook to syllabi or lecture notes, slides, videos, your own like your own recorded lectures, anything that can basically be published can be published as an OER. And how is OER impacting higher education? So um, open access began in higher education kind of in a lot of different ways that then kind of converged. Um, it kind of began as like an open data. So people who were coding and needed, wanted open software were able to then share those codes. Um, and then it kind of grew to include all sorts of things like open science, uh, open software, open data, OER, and then open pedagogy. Initially, OER were kind of seen as this way to save students money on really expensive textbooks. And in addition to that, after kind of starting to save students money, they wanted to kind of change how students were taught, which led to then open pedagogy. And so those are the two areas that are really impacted in higher education. And for listeners that maybe aren't familiar with the term open pedagogy, can you define that for us? Yeah, so open pedagogy is kind of a new way of getting students to engage with the material that people teach. So it used to be that instructors explain what the content is and the students read the textbook and take quizzes. And if students have an assignment, they submit it, the instructor reads it, and then it goes into the recycle bin. And with open pedagogy, you use open educational resources together with the students. So instead of having students just consume a textbook, they kind of create parts of the textbook. So you may, there's all different ways, um, but you may have your students collaboratively create or edit a chapter in a textbook. Through doing that, they really deeply engage with the material and kind of own it. And their name will go on that chapter and then it gets shared with the rest of the world, not just with their instructor. So students tend to be a little bit more motivated because it really is meaningful to share it with all these other people. And it could be a line on their resume that they've participated in a textbook. I don't know about you, but we do a lot of online discussions in our classes and you have to kind of force students to discuss about the topic and make it interesting. But with open pedagogy, since they're collaboratively working on an OER or a section of it, they just talk about the content just to get things done. So it happens more organically. And what are some of the databases or platforms, websites? There are quite a few. Um, and then I looked up kind of specifically for art. Um, and so one of the platforms is Lumen Learning, which is um, a content creator, but then also a repository for OER. And they have a course in art appreciation. And one of the really neat things about this repository in particular is each of the sections are linked. And so you have a description of like a chapter heading, basically. So it is kind of set up like a textbook. And then those can then be transferred into a content management system. So if you're using Canvas or Moodle, those can then be integrated into and easily disseminated to students to be able to review. So Lumen Learning has art appreciation. There's another repository called the Open Textbook Library, which is 
Exactly. As it sounds, it's a library of open textbooks, and it's through the University of Minnesota, which has an introduction to art, which includes design, context, and meaning. Other platforms that include like Google Arts and Culture have not only do they have images, but they have lessons and different ways to integrate different styles into your classroom. So from your experience, if you had to rank program your fields, where does the arts fall? Are they, are they low on the totem pole in their use of OER? Is there more potential for them to engage with it? There's definitely a lot of potential. <laughs> I think arts tend to fall a little bit lower because it is, I think, instruction-based and studio-based. And, and I think that a lot of the things that I have seen tend to be more geared towards art history, which is something that you can, you can pull images from. You can find images that are in the public domain. You can find other resources. Can we go into a little more detail with that? I know it's always a concern for faculty as they put together their syllabus. Can you speak a little more about copyright infringement? Any tips for faculty members? For a lot of us, um, when we're in our learning management systems, we tend to just put PDFs up for students to use. Since it's behind a firewall, like you have to log in to get to the learning management system, the jury is really out. But it's the safest thing to do is to provide a link. So not to provide the actual source, but a link to the source. That's a, usually a good way to avoid the copyright infringement. And for images, um, you can do an advanced Google search or a search in databases like Flickr and actually do a Creative Commons search and set it so that you can find different licenses. So you can just you find art that is free to use and modify or free to use, as long as you say who was the creator. And I think most libraries will have like subjects so you can look for databases that are specific to art or art education or art history um, and so using those links like Anne was saying instead of just the pdfs is, is a very good way of maintaining that you're not in violation of any type of copyright i do get a lot of questions about fair use and it's a very fuzzy very gray space yeah and the nice thing for the library is if you just grab the pdf that counts in our database statistics as one use. But if you have 70 kids in a class and 40 people actually go and use an article, that's 40 clicks on it. So that is more of a justification for us, like, hey, we're paying $10,000 or $40,000, whatever it might be for a database. And if only, you know, if very few people use it, the database may just go away entirely. But if we can show that usage, so that's a nice side effect of providing the link versus the actual source. Have you seen connections between, say, OER and other skills for students or faculty? So I'm thinking here of research literacy. I think definitely um, people have seen an impact on students and how they interact with, with the work and with the subject and the content of, of what is being taught. And, and I think that there have been, at least at SUU, several instances where faculty have experienced great success with students either creating ancillary materials or kind of thinking outside the box and creating case studies or doing things like that that reflect more accurately what they're learning. Yeah, and be part of the whole content creation versus just consuming it. The whole open pedagogy movement started in with English. You have these big readers, and they're massive, and they are very expensive. And this one professor said, wow, all the stuff in here is actually so old that it's in public domain, and yet I'm paying all this, my students are paying all this money. So how about we just create our own Norton Reader? And I imagine you could do something similar with art, because these art books are also crazy expensive, and a lot of the images in there are also in the public domain. So they created a spreadsheet, and just each student took like a bunch of them, and they created this free reader, but the students 
actually hated it because in the Norton readers, you have little text surrounding the literature. So it, it has a little interpretive piece to it. And so then she's just like, okay, why don't my students write those pieces? It's actually just available too. Mm-hmm. Oh. I forgot what it's called. The but... Earlier Anthology of American Literature. Yeah, so it's created by <laughs> mostly students with the help of faculty. But I think that's really cool. And you could do something like that with art as well. And I think that's how it changes it for faculty. We talked how it kind of gets students to be more engaged, but I think it helps faculty kind of re-engage. And also they, these OER, OERs <laughs> are never really finished. So they put a version of it online and they say, basically, here it is. And if you then with your class come along and you're like, wow, this is great, but I want to add, I don't know, maybe a quiz bank to it. So then you contribute and then it gets tied to that book that's free. And now we have a free quiz bank. So together we just create all these educational materials that are maybe faculty led, but sometimes student led and certainly student driven that are free for everybody. And how are some of those resources managed? So I'm thinking of all these layers of input. And you know, naturally, is there a hierarchy that forms where someone takes an editorial role? Are there administrators that oversee some of these larger projects like the anthology you mentioned? So an example that's kind of been happening um, here at SUU is students are kind of broken into groups and then they're each in charge of a specific section. So one is in charge of either creating quizzes or quiz questions, doing kind of those text boxes that describe or introduce a concept. Uh, And then there was one that was images, you know, either drawing them themselves or finding images that pertain to this particular application or or piece of information that they're studying. And, And then the students kind of acted as their own buffers. And so as they switched into different groups and were then in charge of different pieces of the content, they kind of monitored themselves. And then the faculty member kind of then monitors the whole, (laughs) the whole as it's being put together. And then the higher up you get, there are kind of elements of peer review. So Open Textbook Library does have a peer review process. And so there are kind of different ways for, especially for faculty who are concerned with scholarship, there are ways to kind of have that count towards that type of scholarship. But then really for classes, it's usually the the professor who's in charge of that class who kind of mediates and makes sure the content's accurate. And there's versioning going on. So it'll say what version it is, what year it is. And um, usually these licenses require you to cite where you got it from Mm -hmm. or what you're building on. So in the OER's history, you could see, okay, it started out as version one with all these people. Now we're in version four, you know, and these people have added additional chapters. So you can kind of track how it's grown and how it's improved over time. A teaser for those that are listening on the podcast of what is to come could be the future of OER, how they take off. I don't know. It's interesting to watch how the publishers are responding to OER. So they're trying to figure out all these different ways to keep people tied to those expensive textbooks. You have some good examples of some crazy stuff that publishers are doing. Well, they're they're selling OER. They're charging feet. A lot of them are starting to... They're including them in packages, so it's you pay for this digital content, but OER are included in the digital content. So they're free and they're available, but they're charging. Yeah, and then you don't really buy the textbook itself, you buy access to the textbook, and it'll also get you access to the quizzes you may be required to take in the classroom. So they really try to tie professors to these textbooks and also make it difficult for students to not use them. 
it's going to be interesting to see how the publishers respond to OER and how then the OER world responds to that. For me, the thing that is, is very exciting is the ability that students have and faculty have to be creative with their classes. Either create content or create artifacts or do something that hasn't necessarily been done. I mean, we have a, a math student who turned concepts of abstract algebra into a card game. And for, for other people that are listening that maybe want to institute this at their own universities, how did this start here at SUU? And where did it begin? Did it begin in the library or with faculty members? It may have started in the library, but the provost had a deep interest in it. Then when he started doing the curriculum innovation grants, he had five strands within that and one was OER. So then more and more faculty were made familiar with it and were given funding to introduce OER in their courses. I think there was also a push to make courses a little bit more cheaper for students. So education is getting more and more expensive because the government is not really helping or the state helping to pay for it. The only way we can make it cheaper for students is through the textbooks. The reasoning was, well, why don't we make all our general education classes uh, use OER textbooks? But it's, it's kind of a big thing to do. It's a lot of work. And so you really need a dedicated person and then hired Rosie. I think it definitely stems from this idea of helping students save money, I think. Um, so one of the statistics um, is that, I mean, textbook prices have risen over a thousand percent. On top of that, tuition is more expensive and housing is more expensive and food and everything. And it just kind of takes a toll on the students. And so it really started and starts at most universities and most places as a way to help alleviate some of the financial strain of higher education. From there is when it develops into, wow, look at what we can do with these resources and look at how we can change how we're teaching these courses and how students interact with the content. And so I think, you know, it kind of, that's the progression is it starts with how can we help students save money and then how can we really get them excited about what they're learning and have them be creators and part of this knowledge creation and conversation that surrounds academia.